Hello, wonderful people. This is Jason English with Things About Things, simplifying concepts without sacrificing depth. Today's concept is narcissism, and I'm on the phone here with my friend in Michigan, Chuck DeGroat. Some of you have heard me talk about Chuck uh, over the years, or maybe even read some of his stuff. Chuck is a professor, he's an author, he's a counselor. And, and more. Uh, to me, Chuck is very much a mentor from afar. And over the years, I've realized that I look up to him more and more than I ever even realized when I first met him. I definitely would call him a friend and I'm so grateful that he agrees. Uh, hey, Chuck, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, well, narcissism is the, is the topic, but I hope that this kind of flows in lots of different directions as well. Um, but thanks so much for being a, a part of this and, and sharing some of, of your wisdom with me and for, with us today. Yeah, man, of course. Uh, I also want to point out that uh, some that have, that have read my book might recognize this name as uh, you wrote the foreword for my book. And I remember being, I was kind of even shaky when I asked you. Uh, wow. because I, I didn't want to kind of like take advantage of something. I don't know. I don't even really yeah. know how to put into words what was on my mind, but I'm just so thankful not only for you agreeing to write the forward, but also for the intentionality of what you wrote. So thanks. Oh man, it was so good. And I think so much of what we do sort of intersects in many different ways. And so it was just so fun to read that and to see to see sort of the depth and breadth of your your understanding of the story of God, mm. which I learned from. So thank you. Mm, thanks, man, so much. Well, uh, you have a book that just came out, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. And Man, what a packed title! <laughs> and um, um, and right. I, I'm I'm part of the way through. I'm 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 part of the launch team, and I'm part of the way through. And um, I'm gonna I want to read a quote that you open the book with. Uh, but before I read that, will you try to put in? Will you put into words your definition of narcissism? Oh man. So we can go in so many different directions because it's as old as Genesis chapter three and, and that sort of shame based, uh, grasping for the fruit, you know, Adam and Eve wondering, is God enough? Are we enough grasping for, for power, for control, for knowledge? And I think, I think that narcissism like proper that, you know, the diagnostic kind of language around it for a disorder gets that grandiosity, um, gets at attention seeking, gets at a misuse or manipulation of power, uh, lack of empathy, um, because we're so self-focused, we can't see beyond ourselves. Um, and then, and then the diagnostic language kind of gets at like impairments, they say impairments of empathy or impairments of identity and intimacy, which basically means that your relationship and your work are going to be really messed up from this stuff mm. and that's 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 not what it says in the clinical definition but that's my way of saying it yeah it's just uh narcissism the disorder of narcissism um impacts every area of one's life and relationships and work wow and and i i remember just from your re reading your stuff as well as just listening to you talk about narcissism uh, want to from the get-go maybe have you clarify for us that 
maybe we hear something like that and we're like, oh man, am I a narcissist? And you, you, you talk about narcissistic tendencies as opposed to an actual diagnosed narcissism. Can you explain the difference? Yeah. Yeah. So when we, when we use the word narcissism and it's used a lot, right. For political figures and, um, Hollywood stars and everything in between, uh, we we're sometimes not very careful with it. And the reality is, is that narcissism exists on a spectrum. Uh, so, so many, many, many of us have narcissistic traits. I mean, we live in America. We, we feel entitled to lots and lots of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, so there's a kind of narcissistic style. And then if you sort of creep up the spectrum, you get to narcissistic type, which is uh, that can be more problematic. Now, now your narcissism is, is, is sort of more of a pattern of behaving. And then if you creep up the spectrum even more, it becomes narcissistic personality disorder. And this is where it's really a problem. And this is often where people say narcissistic personality disorder, narcissism uh, can't can't be fixed, can't be healed. Like it's just at that point, you're just kind of trying to mitigate damage. Uh, but mm. but I I also talk about a, a kind of form of healthy narcissism, and that can be kind of controversial. But if you think about it, um, if we're raised well, we have a, a real healthy sense of self love, um, the kind of self love that. That leads to neighbor love, and um, and it, just as it's not like inherently dangerous for your daughter to do a cartwheel and say, "Daddy, Daddy, look at me! I did a cartwheel." And like, she's not a narcissist. That is a problem if you're 45 years old and you're like, "Look at me! Look at me! I preach the best sermon." Right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that there is a, a healthy sense of self, self-confidence, self-compassion, self-esteem, self-worth uh, that is worthy of, of a, a kind of um, like more robust sense of the word narcissism. It's just when it becomes a fixed way of, of relating in the world uh, yeah. and, and uh, causes lots of problems in our relationships and our work and everything else. Yeah, and then your book with the subtitle about healing your community from emotional and spiritual abuse, narcissistic tendencies that end up becoming stronger and more powerful, so to speak, causing damage to others, is a lot more extreme than just hoping to have your parent see you do a cartwheel as a child. It it, it really starts to do harm towards yeah. others. Uh, That's right. I'm gonna and especially. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, can you describe, like this Thomas Merton quote that that is in the opening of your book, uh, this is basically a quote from him related to one with narcissistic tendencies, or how would you describe what that quote is? Yeah, so uh, that's from New Seeds of Contemplation, which I think is just like his magnum opus, you know. And mm-hmm. he's he he actually uses the word narcissism in there someplace, but oh, okay. yeah, he, he's getting he's getting at kind of like a basic egocentricity okay. that uh, that is the mark of a I think in that context just a really lonely existence, you know, because the narcissist, although he longs for esteem, attention, affection. Um, he's ultimately a desperately lo- lonely human being, and and this is especially this can especially be the case among those who are r- religious leaders and pastors or rabbis or uh, wh- whatever the case may be. That uh, those of us on stage talking about God and using the words of God can lead a very lonely existence, even in a sense outside of communion with God, or at least experience that way. So it's a really tragic way of living, according to Merton. 
Yeah. So let me let me read this, and then we can talk yeah. about um, this as well as just kind of more of what you share in the book. So this is Thomas Merton from New Seeds of Contemplation, kind of referring to a hypothetical egocentric person. The pleasure that is in his heart when he does difficult things and succeeds in doing them well tells him secretly, I am a saint. At the same time, others seem to recognize him as different from themselves. They admire him or perhaps avoid him, a sweet homage of sinners. The pleasure burns into a devouring fire. The warmth of that fire feels very much like the love of God. It is fed by the same virtues that nourish the flame of charity. He burns with self-admiration and thinks it is the fire of the love of God. He thinks his own pride is the Holy Ghost. The sweet warmth of pleasure becomes the criterion of all his works. The relish he savors in acts that make him admirable in his own eyes drives him to fast or to pray or to hide in solitude or to write many books or to build churches and hospitals or to start a thousand organizations. And when he gets what he wants, he thinks his sense of satisfaction is the unction of the Holy Spirit. And the secret voice of pleasure sings in his heart, I am not like other men. Once he has started on this path, there is no limit to the evil his self-satisfaction may drive him to do in the name of God and of his love and for his glory. He is so pleased with himself that he can no longer tolerate the advice of another or the commands of a superior When someone opposes his desires, he folds his hands humbly and seems to accept it for the time being. But in his heart, he is saying, I am persecuted by worldly men. They are incapable of understanding one who is led by the Spirit of God. With the saints, it has always been so. Having become a martyr, he is ten times as stubborn as before. It is a terrible thing which... When such a one gets the idea he is a prophet or a messenger of God or a man with a mission to reform the world, he is capable of destroying religion and making the name of God odious to men. End quote. All right, well, can you help me? This may be even like a, a, a quick free, a quick free uh, counseling session. Why is it that when I read that, I, was, I go, oh my God, I think God saved me from the, the, being that. Like yeah. what, what's going on in me when I read that, and I I'm not thinking of someone else. I'm thinking of me, which means I have egocentric tendencies. Yeah, well, I think that, that I think that represents a basic honesty with yourself, Jason. Mm. Um, and I I have this sense sometimes that uh, when if we read a quote like this and we think of ten other people, that's a problem, <laughs> right? And um, I'll confess that. As I read Merton, I think, oh, yeah, that explains that person in my life and that person <laughs> in my life and that person. But but there is something really simple about this. You know, you get to the end, and the language is pretty exaggerated, destroying mm-hmm. religion, making the name of God odious to men. But, you know, right kind of like at the middle of it, if I remember right, you're talking about the person who writes books or builds churches and yeah. hospitals or yeah. starts an organization. Right? And that, that seems pretty innocent. Like, yeah. I... I think that sounds good, you know, probably good to start a hospital. Uh, That wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, So so this is where it's just so subtle. And and getting back to what what you're asking about, I think uh, 
I think the path, I guess, the antidote to narcissism, uh, I often say is wholeheartedness, yeah. to, to, to quote you and me, yeah. and our respective writings, right? That that there's a basic honesty with oneself that leads us to humility and to curiosity and and even to wonder, maybe, maybe this quote does implicate me. Mm. And that's okay, you know? Like, we don't have to hide in shame. Actually, then we can come out into the light. And that's that's really, like, in a sense, the definition of wholeheartedness is yeah. come out of the shadows and live freely before God and be known by God. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. So, uh, yeah, next time, next time we have a podcast conversation together, I want to talk about one of your other books, Wholeheartedness, which really kind of set me on a a trajectory. Uh, and for me, I think that I actually have narcissistic tendencies for sure. And that a combination of brokenness and some sort of guidance of what it means to to heal the divided self once it was broken. Once I realized the brokenness, I should say. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, man, I kind of suck sometimes. It was like, what does it mean to bring things whole together? So I would really, next time, like to talk about um, that, that wholeheartedness, um, yeah. healing the divided self. So yeah. why did you open your book... I mean, with that quote, it's before the table of contents. It's before the forward. It's before the introduction. <laughs> yeah. Why was that quote your opening of your book? Yeah, so, um, I don't know. I was sitting in Ferris Coffee one day, <laughs> taking a sip of nitro, and it just seemed to sit. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I think Merton, Merton, uh, Merton deconstructs the, the, the human soul in a way that I think no one else does i mean he's just so brilliant and for me has been sort of sort of a like a, a mentor a teacher a sage from afar you know he died what 1968 i think but mm. uh his writings have been so important to me and Good. and there's something about that the subtlety of that quote i mean he he makes his way uh you, you read it so beautifully and so gently because it seems so innocent you know and, and there he has a picture of a man who gets some feedback and he just kind of folds his hand and takes it in mm-hmm. but there's a quiet judgmentalism in yeah. him and I think when I think about narcissism in the church it comes in really blatant and bullying kinds of forms but it's it's often in the quiet judgmentalism that I find in my own heart you know and so someone's probably not going to look at me and accuse me of being like some kind of big he oh he always needs to be up front needs yeah. to be on stage but if they saw my heart they'd see the sort of the more quiet judgmental narcissism that I think we all can relate to and and uh, that's not to say that's I I, I, I want to be really careful there because I I really take time in the book to point out the dangers of diagnosable narcissism and the various forms of abuse yeah but if we're not honest with ourselves and if we don't see ourselves implicated in this then it's it's kind of then it becomes a book of judgment you know it becomes a narcissistic book of pointing the finger at everyone else you know so <laughs> yeah that's a problem but it is what you just alluded to is i think really an, an important aspect of self-identification is it doesn't it's not always played out in the form of the fearless leader with the microphone with the spotlight on them that's extremely charismatic and that's yeah. more of a, that's a more obvious version of it can you talk mm-hmm. more about that i know you kind of walked through some some of the enneagram aspects of yeah that. yeah 
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so when we think about the caricature of narcissism, we think about that grandiose person who always needs the microphone. But I think one of the things that happened for me way back in the day when I I got my mental health counseling degree in the late 1990s and was first exposed to the Enneagram back then through the writings of Richard Rohr, mm-hmm. uh, I, in my work with people, I started to see the intersection of these things, you know, and so I'd be working with someone who I say, yeah, there there are some features of narcissism here, but uh, this person isn't like the classic, like people might say, oh yeah, an Enneagram 3 is kind of more classically narcissistic, and no, not at all, actually, this is a person who might identify with Enneagram 9 energy, and you know, this isn't an Enneagram conversation, and people mm-hmm. might not even understand that language, yeah, but yeah. the basic idea is that there are kind of nine personalities or faces that I, I put to narcissism in the various ways that it shows up. And it and it really um, it matches well with the research out there, uh, which gets at kind of two major aspects of narcissism, grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. And vulnerable narcissism is a more kind of subtle, slimy, manipulative um, uh kind of form of narcissism that might not look like the the person up on stage, but actually might look like someone kind of working the angles behind the scenes in ways that can be really toxic and dangerous. Mm. What do you do with that when you identify it in yourself? So let's say I know you've talked about, well, actually, can you briefly talk about the, your, your vulnerability? uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so vulnerability, uh, F-A-U-X, not mm-hmm. vulnerability, but vulnerability is is an aspect of narcissism that I've seen show up over the last, like, maybe decade or so, or maybe a little bit more. But we talked about sort of classic attributes of a narcissistic leader. And one of the things that I noticed was that when I when I first started doing this work uh, in the late 1990s and we were identifying through assessments and stuff like that, narcissism in Christian leaders in particular, uh, there wasn't any kind of sense of like uh, that they could talk about themselves in any kind of honest way. But but over time, with the with more psychological language, personality tests, nowadays you can hear people say, "Oh yeah, well you know I'm a I'm an E E N T P and I'm a Enneagram five and I'm a you know and, and it might even sound like they know themselves a little bit. And that's where it gets particularly dangerous. And vulnerability is a false kind of vulnerability. It says, "Oh yeah, I know I'm a sinner. You know we all sin. Of course, you know I have blind spots, but." But it ends up being a person who isn't really willing to dig in and actually put specific words to that sin. You know, like right. this is how it shows up in my relationships right. and how I hurt people. It's more a general sense of um, trying to convey to you that that he gets himself, but he really doesn't. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so let's say it, it's for me. This is so complicated when I think through the moments where maybe I was vulnerable and open. But I might identify a certain part of myself that actually was pretending to be vulnerable, and I don't—I didn't know it when I was saying it. I, yeah. I realized it afterwards. Can you give some advice of like how to process that yeah. after the fact? 
Yeah, so this is this gets back to what we were talking about earlier and the importance of curiosity and humility yeah. and self-awareness. And I think some, some of what ends up happening in this conversation is uh, we all kind of see ourselves, and yeah. this is what's happening with the book too, which is kind of cool. Yeah. We all kind of see ourselves implicated in this. And then we catch ourselves in the act. And, yeah. you know, I, 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 I felt it the other day when I was kind of just see, seething with a kind of quiet anger uh, at, at someone like on the interwebs, you know, on Twitter yeah. of all people. This sure. isn't even a person in front of me, you know. Sure. And But my, my anger can like carry across miles and great distances, you know. Yeah. And a kind of quiet rage within me and judgmentalism of this person and just kind of not even aware of it in the moment here you know i've been through a lot of therapy and and done inner work and but it felt good and it actually felt powerful and um that's the thing about uh any form of narcissism it's kind of like an addiction it's intoxicating it gives you a sense of power to to name to caricature to label to judge and then, you know, right after that, there was this sense of, oh, God, wow, that is so powerful. And I didn't even want to come out of that. I actually felt, like, drugged up. Like, I, yeah. I felt pretty good feeling powerful. And and, and it's sort of after the fact, I want to ask myself, so what was that about? You know, where, where have you been today? What did yeah. you need in that, Chuck? You know, um, how does that come out of my own unique story of shame and insecurity and a need for power? Um, yeah. and a need for esteem and a need to be seen and a need to be right and all those kinds of things, you know, so it led to a kind of honest inner conversation, but my goodness, I didn't want to get there because the, 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 like the high from it felt so good. Oh man. So I, I think you're, you're, we're overlapping with some wholeheartedness talk because yeah, yeah. I think this, this, this concept of wholeheartedness is... It, it seems so much more accessible to me than what I th- was kind of fed for years, which is like if you identify something about yourself that isn't ideal, you're just supposed to not do that thing anymore, you know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And wholeheartedness is more of like bringing it all together in the light and realizing that it is a part of you. It is not your true self, but it actually is a part of you and part of some of your tendencies and yeah. acknowledging it. And that's yeah. so helpful instead of just like, oh, sometimes, I, you know, I'm, I'm an only child. I'm, I was the look at me doing a cartwheel and like all, everyone stopped and looked, you know, and then, yeah. and then despite efforts of trying to not get the spotlight, so to speak, I become a pastor that I didn't even try to make that happen. And then I'm handed the microphone and then I mm-hmm. go, so if I'm going to identify narcissistic tendencies, should I just put the microphone down and so that I won't be the center of attention or are there ways that maybe I am quote unquote meant to do that? I don't know, but regardless, it's my job. It's, it's my role. So how can I, instead of like literally just putting the microphone down and walking away, admitting I have some of these ego things messing with me and making decisions that are not going to create this continued cycle of, of emotional and spiritual abuse to do more damage, but also knowing I'm still a person that will hurt people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons you and I are, are probably drawn to this kind of larger 
idea of, of wholeness and wholeheartedness in, in the deepest sense of it um, is because for so long, as you said, we were taught to just cut off parts of ourselves that were bad. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember in youth group back in like the 1980s, you know, don't don't listen to rock and roll. Um, it'll corrupt your brain. And, you know, and you start cutting things off in your life. But then you realize, like, I can't cut off per- parts of my personality. Wait a second. There's yeah. a limit to this, you know? Yeah. And it, what's what's uh, what's difficult about that, painful about that kind of way of, of seeing life and dealing with uh, human brokenness is that it's shame-based. Um, yeah. it, it, it looks to sort of point at those parts of people and parts of life and say, that's bad. When in reality, uh, these... Uh, you know, Jason with a microphone is beautiful, but Jason with a microphone is also broken. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it's it's more complicated. And so uh, we don't want Jason to put down the microphone. We want Jason to be more self-aware, you know, yeah. kind of know um, the highways um, and the, the back roads of his heart, you know, to do. I often describe the human heart, the work of the human heart is doing a kind of archaeological dig mm. and getting to know kind of the subterranean layers of your heart to better understand. So what was that about? Or why did I need to make that joke at that time? Yeah. Um, and so that's where each each of us is invited to kind of root out a kind of latent narcissism in ourselves. But we also discover hidden treasures when we explore those shadow regions of our heart. Oh, man. Can you share some advice, maybe those that are listening now that they're like, well... I don't have the microphone, and I never have the microphone. What is what 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 would those people be called to do in in light of this book, in light of what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, yeah they they might not have the microphone, but they're they're human, like you are, like I am, and um, they're also capable of uh, of judging. Of uh, I, I, so I. I'm thinking of a conversation that I had with someone who's an Enneagram nine, and uh, we we already said that pe- some people might be listening and not know the Enneagram, but just yeah. quickly, the nine is is kind of the peacemaking personality. Most people would say the nine is the farthest from any kind of narcissism, and uh, because she's so gentle, or he's he just wants to bring people together. And I was talking to a woman. I said, "So tell me, most most people would say you are just you are like an angelic presence in our organization, you know. And yeah. when you walk into a room, it kind of feels like uh, we can all take a deep breath um, because you're there. Um, we'll listen better to one another because of it. Mm-hmm. And um, and she's like, oh, but." If you only knew that I'm just kind of loading the arrows into my quiver, you know, getting ready to take aim uh, in my heart. And I was like, I would not not ever know that about you, Um, that you are kind of secretly judging, um, that you passive aggressively poke. But then I I started noticing it, like the knives would come out, but they're not big knives like a a grandiose narcissist. They're little tiny jabs, you know. Um, a thousand invisible wounds over time is equal to a really big jab, you know, and so um, we see it happen in really, really subtle ways, and this woman was a woman of, like, great humility that was able to sort of open her heart and say, oh, here's how it plays out for me. Don't let me off the hook. 
book. Mm, man, so this is this is a huge aspect of this is inner work and in our inner lives. Yeah, and that's I mean, right. just like everything, really. Like everything. So, uh, so you've been you've been you know pastor, counselor, spiritual director, author for for a few decades. Uh, how long have you been working on this? Twenty plus years. Yeah, so uh, it was back in seminary that I was kind of called out for my own arrogance and certainty and all that stuff, and that was that was in September of 1997. I began my journey of of uh, working on my own stuff, and I've been a pastor um, since 1998. Um, yeah, pastor, therapist, spiritual director, stuff like that. Well, can you? I mean, as much as you're comfortable. Yeah. What happened in? September 1997, what did they say, and what did it do to you? Yeah, so that's that for me is a really important piece of this, and I don't tell that story in the in the book or anything like that, but okay. I was a pretty... Uh, I was a pretty insecure and anxious guy uh, growing up, and uh, one of the things that I had that I could sort of use that was in my arsenal was my mind. Yeah. Uh, at least back in the day, I think I've, I'm, I'm a little bit more fuzzy than I was back then, but um, and with great, great certainty about about my theological beliefs and um i mean i had catechisms memorized and uh-huh. stuff like that and i was you know so if you if if we got into a sparring match about something and and i disagreed with you i had some things i had some tools in my my toolkit you know to right. to to win the argument and um but i i didn't know that about myself i didn't see that at all uh it was a really subtle form of, of power in my life uh in the midst of real profound powerlessness and anxiety and panic attacks and um wow deep deep shame and so it was gary gary rupp a professor of mine who uh i i didn't like this guy at all he used to sit in the back row of his classes and think this is just a bunch of junk you know all this <laughs> self-awareness stuff uh and, but he was the guy I went to when I started feeling overwhelmed, like when when the walls started collapsing in um, psychically for me, you know, and I was becoming overwhelmed with my anxiety. I was starting to apply to PhD programs and stuff like that. It was Gary, of all people, who I went to. And I, I said, help, do you have a you know quick fix for this? Uh, I don't know what to do. And over the course of the next hour, he just deconstructed me oh. uh, like any good, you know, wise sage therapist uh would do with kindness and gentleness and honesty and and uh what's really interesting is a number of years later i became an adjunct at that school and um i took the office that he occupied and i still i I thought that i saw on the floor i still thought that i saw on the floor like a um the stain where my tears (laughs) kind of created a puddle you know but that was it that was that was a moment that was the first moment i remember walking up that day thinking i will never be the same um wow. it's as close to understanding what it means to be born again yeah that i've ever experienced you yeah, know yeah yeah uh, yeah what a beautiful story man and then uh proverbially and literally in this office space we're, we're able to provide that kind of role in the next generation's yeah. lives as well yeah yeah and i yeah. think that there's a there's a I think it's a Buddhist quote. I don't. I might be paraphrasing or misquoting, but it's something like, 
uh, when you heal yourself, you heal seven generations after you or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so th- there's a lot there. And so you have, you thought it was a quick fix and he, this professor of yours invited you into like a process that would last the rest of your life. <laughs> That's right. Right. That's so so yeah, it wasn't like that day I was healed, but it opened me up to the conversation at least. Right. And then as you know, you just peel away layer after layer and just, uh, January of this year, I had two, two different spiritual directors punch me in the nose, you know, like, um, like just really good, really hard, really like they saw stuff that I didn't see and it's still happening, right? Still wow. seeing blind, uh, waking up to blind spots and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we've, you've kind of defined narcissism and talked about this inner work and the phonerability phrase. You also yeah. address gaslighting in your book and I've seen plenty of people post uh, about gaslighting but I didn't know what it was and so I kind of looked it up and I've also heard you talking about what it is but can you define gaslighting and give some examples of what that means yeah gaslighting is a a kind of a form of emotional abuse I'd say Um, and it's a uh, it's kind of a a process a way that someone who's in power so the the abuser in a relationship makes um, someone else feel crazy or stupid or like they don't get it Um, I was was talking to someone last week who uh, was was experiencing a form of gaslighting and uh, she she went to her boss who happened to be a senior pastor and kind of um, shared what she thought she heard him say and he said I didn't say that I, I, why do you take things the way you take things this has happened a lot over the years mm-hmm. and as we as we uh, walked through it uh, her, her memory is actually pretty clear she remembers well but this is his defense is to say you're crazy mm-hmm. you don't remember things rightly um, I never said anything like that so it's a it's a kind of crazy making form of emotional abuse that renders the, the, the victim kind of powerless in the face of of um, a kind of twisted reality, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, it's we're all susceptible to it. I I realized yeah. as I was writing the book, I thought about some things in my own life over the course of years where it was like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that at the hands of. Um, a, a pastor, a spiritual leader, that's where it can be particularly painful. Yeah. Well, the the concept of this podcast is simplifying a concept without sacrificing depth. So uh, what I want to recommend for those that are interested in this, to, to purchase Chuck's book, it's called When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. You can go to Chuck's website. It's chuckdegroat.net. Uh, you can also find his book on on the all the online platforms, Amazon, all that stuff, and you can find it there. Uh, but Chuck, can you try? This is this is probably the toughest question after even after all of your research and decades and and then months and months of writing. Can you try to simplify the concept for us of how we can? heal this this you know uh abused world that we're in from narcissism 
Yeah, so I think it will always be with us because it's as old as Genesis chapter 3, you know, and it's just a kind of a part of the story. Uh, you and I participate in our own ways in it. and But I do think that, uh, as we talked about earlier, I said wholeheartedness is an antidote. And what I mean by wholeheartedness is going on a journey of, of, of waking up to oneself and one's own complexity um, and one's own complicity too in the brokenness of the world. Uh, I, I don't expect that uh, I've been a pastor in two different churches and I've led uh, a lot of different people in different spaces and I never ever expect that there'll be some some moment where someone is like healed and oh, so they're not egocentric anymore. Uh, of course not. I do I do hope for humility. I do hope for like when I when I step on your foot that you tell me that hurt. You stepped on my foot and that hurt and I can say tell me about that. I'm I'm really sorry that I hurt you. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, "Oh, you 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 know, instead of yeah. saying, "Oh, you always say that I step on your foot, but I never step on your foot," you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, or uh, humans step on each other's yeah. foots all the time in in life and <laughs> like generalize it. Yeah, generalizing <laughs> it, right? But actually moving toward a basic honesty with ourselves where we can own how we hurt one another and how we're complicit, even at a systemic level. And so that's what I hope for. I hope for more honesty, uh, more curiosity, uh, self-awareness, understanding one's own story, um, things like that that I think we all can do. You know, this isn't, it's it's not hard. Uh, it's harder maybe on a systemic level because when we talk about narcissism in organizations or systems, it really requires a kind of dismantling of it um, by a group of people. And yeah. uh, when, when you prize your organization or your theological system uh, or your institutional polity or policies, uh, and set them up as idols, uh, it's really hard to tear down those idols, you know? It's it's hard enough to do your own self-work. It's a lot harder to to do it in the context of a a large organization or denomination or political system even, you know? So it it takes courage, right? It takes a lot of courage. It takes honesty. Um, It takes moving toward disruption and painful conversations, and a lot of us run away from those kinds of conversations. Yeah. Um, and and not least the painful conversations with your own self and parts of you that will resist this, you know, parts of you that like their egocentricity. Yeah. So, yeah, it's complicated. Well, thanks. And thanks for doing this work with so many people, including in your own heart. I know that there, there has to be, well, I don't know, but just from my experience in pastoral work, I'm sure as a therapist, there's got to be some sort of exhaustion that can come from processing this with people um so thank you for being willing to be in those spaces with people thanks for the role that you play as a therapist as a as a professor a spiritual director and your pastoral experience and then like i said at the beginning of this thank you for holding those spaces for me i i very much look up to you and um have learned so much from you and and so honored to call you friend and thanks that you let me do that (laughs) Um, yeah thank you yeah um and i'm grateful i'm grateful for you jason and for your work and your humility and i get to listen to your sermons from a distance and learn (laughs) from you and so there's there's a 
there's an immense mutuality in this. So oh. I'm grateful for you. Well, uh, well, everyone who's listening, uh, I really recommend you get his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. You can go to chuckdegroat.net, and that's spelled D-E-G-R-O-A-T. So chuckdegroat.net. And... Um, we're going to have a follow-up conversation about wholeheartedness. So if you heard us talking about that and not quite sure what all that means, we're going to go into that in another podcast conversation. Uh, also, for those of you that are supporters of the podcast, thank you so much. It's because of you that I, I'm able to do this remotely with him. I've got this microphone I'm using, and it, it helps provide for the website, and it helps provide to to host the, the podcasts. And also, it has helped to provide a, a little bit of additional equipment for the some of the videos that I've been making recently. So for those of you that are, you're you're giving a dollar a month towards this, it it might seem little, but that has built up. There are 40 of you that are doing that and it has built up so that I actually could get some more equipment. I just wanted to say an intentional thank you for that. Uh, It has gone a long way. And so please go to chuckdegroat.net and you can also go to thingsaboutthings.com for more things.